Hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm Cynthia. And we are Dolls and Doom. So, Paula, you've actually gotten requests for this case. I have. Jenny B., thanks for requesting it. And Renee H. also requested that Paula cover this case for us. Yes, thank you, Renee, as well. Great minds think alike. Yes, for sure. So what case are you telling us today? On December 24th, 1975, four people were murdered in a furniture store. This is the story of Tommy Ziegler. Am I hearing new theme music? Yes, you are. Is it Christmassy? Creepy Christmassy, because, <gasps> you know, murder doesn't take a Christmas vacation. No, it doesn't. This is Dolls and Doom kind of Christmas. Yeah, creepy Christmas. I like it. Me too. Winter Garden, Florida is a small, quaint town with big trees, small shops, and cozy restaurants. Back in 1945, Thomas Ziegler was born and lived there his whole life. He came from an upper middle class family, graduated high school with honors, and ended up working for the family furniture business. He owned a few apartment buildings and also worked as a football coach at Winter Garden Elementary, where he would meet Eunice Edwards, a kindergarten teacher and his future wife. They got married in 1967 and people said they made marriage look easy. By all accounts and public opinion, Tommy was a stand-up guy. He went to church where Eunice sang and played the organ. Tommy was very active in the community. He was a member of Project Pride, Winter Garden's beautification committee. He called the mayor and chief of police by their first names. He bought groceries for the elderly people in his apartment buildings. He paid someone's gas bill that couldn't afford it. And he was described by a friend as, quote, one of the kindest men I know. Now, I need to stress that this was a very different time. There were a lot of black people that were working as migrant workers. So when I say someone is black, it's only because there is a racial component that is relevant to the story. On Christmas Eve, 1975, Tommy was in a rush to complete his deliveries so he could get home, pick up his wife, and head to his friend's house. Tommy and Ed Williams, a black man that worked as an orange picker and handyman for Tommy, returned to the furniture store at 7 p.m. Tommy couldn't get the light switch in the front entrance to work, so he went around to the back. All of a sudden, Tommy was hit over the head, knocked to the ground, and lost his glasses. He was attacked by two men. He grabs the pistol he takes with him on deliveries, but it jams. Meanwhile, the struggle continues. He gets slammed into walls and refrigerators and eventually gets shot in the stomach. At this point, Ed Williams has run across the street to a Kentucky Fried Chicken to call the police. Two hours later, Tommy wakes up to silence and knowing the chief of police, his friend Don Fickey, was not at work, but at his home. He was actually waiting to meet Tommy and Eunice so they could drive to an annual Christmas party together, so he called Fickey at home. Fickey heads to the store, picks up Tommy, and takes him to the hospital. Fickey makes a call to the Orange County Sheriff's Office to have his officers take a look around. Once inside, they discover four dead bodies. Tommy's wife Eunice, her parents Virginia and Perry Edwards, and a black man named Charlie Mays. You see, Eunice was not as home as Tommy assumed. Their cat got sick that afternoon and she took it to the vet. So thanks to the unscheduled trip to the vet, the shopping trip went from afternoon to evening. She was at the furniture store with her parents to help them pick out a recliner that was going to be their Christmas present. So 
these people were found dead inside this furniture store? Yes, all that, four. That Tommy had just been in, but left after getting attacked. He was making deliveries and picking up money and delivering furniture. And then when him and Ed get back to the store, the front entrance wouldn't work, so he went around to the back. And he didn't know that there were dead bodies on the floor because everything okay. was dark. So the, the, his family was already dead inside the store when he comes back and then gets attacked. That's correct. Wow. Okay. Lead detective Don Fry assesses the scene. Eunice in the kitchen died first, shot behind the ear. Then her parents, a struggle with her father, and finally Charlie Mays, who had store receipts and cash stuffed in his pockets. All done by one shooter. Detective Fry had taken a one-week course on blood spatter, so with that knowledge, he took one look at the crime scene and decided Tommy Ziegler was guilty. So Tommy wakes up in the hospital with a gunshot wound and learns that his wife, in-laws, and a customer in his store were all killed. Five days later, Detective Fry read the warrant and placed him under arrest. Tommy hires attorneys Vernon Davids and Terry Hadley. The prosecution is led by Robert Egan, who compiles a list of reasons why Tommy would want to murder his wife, such as two life insurance policies were recently taken out for Eunice for $500,000. According to Eunice's brother, Perry Jr., Eunice was thinking about leaving Tommy because he was having an affair with a man. Oh, okay. Yeah, a little bit of scandal. Then there's the fact that Perry Sr. and Virginia were in the process of changing their wills, and they offered to leave everything to Tommy a sum of $3.3 million. With all this and the blood spatter, Attorney Egan felt he had the case all wrapped up and it was full steam ahead. In March 1976, Tom had taken and passed a truth serum interrogation, but of course this is useless in court. I didn't even know there was a such thing as a truth serum investigation. Yeah, neither did I. This is the first time I've ever read or heard anything like that. So do we know, did they literally give him a truth serum and then ask him questions? Yeah, uh, you can actually see it in the documentary, um, A Question of Innocence. You can see him laying down, and I don't know if it was something he drank or was injected with, but he was being asked questions, and he was talking. It was kind of like he was a little sleepy, but he was awake. Wow, that's interesting. I know, right? Who knew? I want some of that truth serum. <laughs> yeah, that would be a, a useful thing to have. <laughs> For my own purposes. <laughs> Give it to your children. All right, who broke it? Yes. <laughs> the trial started June 8, 1976, in Jacksonville, Florida. Tommy felt that Judge Maurice Paul had it in for him since the very beginning. Just six months prior, Tommy had testified against a friend of Paul's in a bitter legal dispute. And now Judge Paul refused to recuse himself from Tommy's case. Attorneys Davids and Hadley knew this was going to be a difficult trial. Every motion they made was shot down. Hadley said he had never been in a one-sided trial until now. Five guns were used and about 30 shots were fired. It was a gruesome scene with blood on top of blood. Herbert McDonald, a world-famous blood spatter expert, testified that Tommy beat his father-in-law over the head repeatedly with a crank from off the wall. And that's how Perry's blood ended up on Tommy's shirt. Prosecutor Egan said that Tommy shot himself in an effort to make it look like Williams and Thomas attempted to rob him. Ed Williams said that Tommy pointed the gun at him, but it jammed and that's why he ran to call the police. He claims that after it jammed, Tommy handed him the gun, which he put in his pocket and later gave to police. He said he climbed a chain link fence to get away. More things like this make his testimony weak, such as the people in the KFC said when he came in to call the police, he was wearing different clothes. 
When he turned over his boots to the police, they were completely scuff-free and still had tags on them. Williams went to a friend's house and then drove to Winter Garden Police. Gunshot residue testing was not done on Williams' pants until right before the trial, and it took four days to get the results back. Another witness testifies against Tommy, a black man named Felton Thomas, a friend of Charlie Mays that went with him to pick up the TV. When he heard gunshots, he ran. He went to a bar and later learned that four had died in the furniture store, including Charlie Mays. Felton said the day of the murders, Tommy took him and Charlie to an orange grove to shoot a couple guns, probably to get their prints on them. One of Tommy's attorneys pointed out that the guns were wiped clean. Later, Felton recanted part of his testimony. After two days of testimony, the jury deliberates. Behind closed doors, the jury is going through their own drama. The first time they took a vote, it was split 50-50. After two days, the jury was deadlocked. That's when things began to heat up. The votes were 11 guilty and one not guilty. Mm. The foreman, a black man, said he had already made up his mind that Tommy was guilty. Irma Bickle was outvoted and now being pressured by impatient jurors. One man actually held up one of the guns from evidence to her head and clicked it a couple times. After being shouted at and intimidated from fellow jurors, Irma fainted twice. She became increasingly ill. She couldn't sleep or keep down food. Irma wanted to speak to the judge about her concerns. She was told to write down her concerns to the judge, and he responded with a note, saying, thanks for bringing this to my attention, but there's no need to have a conference. Then Judge Paul contacted her doctor, who sent over a prescription of Valium, and after taking a pill, Brickle gave in and voted guilty. The verdict came back with life in prison, but Judge Paul overturns it and gives Tommy the death penalty. When Judge announced this verdict, Irma screamed and ran out in tears. Later, the judge called her into his chambers. She told Judge Paul she still feels Tom was innocent and only voted guilty because the other jurors bullied her into it. Sentencing was two weeks later. Now, oddly enough, the U.S. Supreme Court had previously put a hold on capital punishment, and just the day before Tommy's sentencing, they reinstated the death penalty. Tommy was sent to Florida State Prison. There he sat for years. Then one day he got a letter from a friend telling him about DNA. The first request for DNA was 1994. The test was blocked by prosecutors. Therefore, it had to be decided by a judge. Back in 1976, it was possible to subtype the blood, which means to find out if the blood is positive or negative. But that request was denied. Finally, the third request to test DNA was granted as it was part of a clemency petition. At that time, the cost of a DNA test was $10,000, and that was just for one tiny square the size of a fingernail. For that reason, they only tested four pieces. They were looking for Perry's blood on Tommy's shirt, and they did not find it. But they did find it on Charlie Mays' pants, which does not line up with the state's version of what happened. However, Judge Reginald Whitehead ruled that insignificant which I don't understand how a DNA on a different person is insignificant. To me, it says they need to further investigate. Now, in every case, the prosecutor is required to give all evidence to the defense. The appeal attorney, Dennis Tracy, made this argument to the judge, saying they should have received all evidence in the very beginning, as they had received a ton of documents that were exculpatory and could have been used, but they were simply told they should have made their request earlier. It seems as if at every turn, the defense is thwarted against being able to prove their case. Tommy's attorney said that it has been an unfair trial since day one. FBI destroyed a batch of fingerprints. A loose tooth was lost from the crime scene and blood samples did not get subtyped, even though Tommy's attorneys requested it. 
The state held on to DNA from the crime scene for 15 days after the murders with no explanation. Much of the evidence was just lost or never recovered in the first place. There were witness reports that could have helped Tommy, but were not used in court. Witness reports like the family staying in a hotel behind the store. Now, I've recently driven between the store and the hotel, which is now a Wawa. You can get from one to the other in less than 20 feet. That's how close they are. So they saw a policeman with his gun drawn standing over his cop car and then heard gunshots. The father called police and made a report, but they were not used to testify. There's a tape recording of Detective Fry calling to follow up. He wanted to see exactly when they heard the gunshot. The adult son, John, answered and said they saw the police and then heard the shots. He asked if there were any updates, and I said to myself out loud, he's not going to tell you anything. But boy, was I wrong. Not only did he answer John's question, he went into great detail about who they suspected and have in custody, how many people were killed, and even mentions the insurance policy. Fry went on to offer the family a, quote, free trip back to Florida if they decided that they heard the shots before they saw the policemen. Another witness statement was the married couple, Ken and Linda Roach. They were driving by the furniture store when they heard shots being fired. They saw a black man walking in the parking lot, which had four cars in it. However, they called the police and made a report and were told their information wasn't needed, even though their testimony is consistent with others that say there had to be more than one shooter. Tommy's attorneys were not told of the juror, Irma Bickle, getting sick and the judge contacting her doctor for Valium. They filed a notice to interview the jury to find out what happened. But the judge filed an injunction forbidding them to talk, which was unheard of. They considered this jury tampering. Police sent prisoners out to search for the bullets in the orange groves that Tommy, Ed Williams, and Felton Thomas shot off from the car. One prisoner contacted Tommy's attorney and said the police planted the bullet and told him where he could find it. Even though Tommy's doctor from the hospital testified that his injuries were due to an attack, the state said Tommy shot himself to make it look like he got robbed, claiming that while in the army, Tommy was a medic, so of course he knew where to shoot himself, causing the least amount of damage. However, his cousin was there for the whole trial and said that that was a lie. He was not a medic, he was a supply sergeant. Lee McEachern, now retired from the Orange County Sheriff's Department, participated in the first trial. He feels that Tommy got railroaded. He also believes that Tommy's gunshot wound couldn't have been self-inflicted by the angle of a right-handed man, which Tommy is. In 1982, a man named Ed Rowe worked with Charlie Mays' son, Ernie. He said Ernie told him that on Christmas Eve, his father put a gun in his pocket and told his family they would be getting money for Christmas. Ed Rowe quotes Ernie saying, my father wasn't supposed to die that night. Tommy Ziegler was supposed to die. There are plenty of people that could want Tommy out of the way as Tommy was trying to help clean up Winter Garden. He helped close the Edgewater Hotel, which was famous for drug dealing and prostitution. He was trying to put an end to gun running, loan sharks, and was the only person known for giving black people credit, something unheard of in the 70s. This case became so huge it was a book, a documentary, and there was a segment on Unsolved Mysteries. Tommy took a lie detector test before his episode aired and passed. Lynn Marie Carty, a private investigator, was drawn in by Tommy's story and began digging to see what she could find. She began investigating Perry Jr., now remember that's Tommy's brother-in-law, and discovered that Eunice took out insurance policies for her new position at the furniture store. The wills of her parents, Virginia and Perry Sr., Tommy actually told them not to put his name in because he didn't need the money and recommended they leave it to their son, Perry Jr. And everything did go to Perry Jr., who was made the sole heir. 
she followed a trail that led to Perry Jr.'s granddaughter, Katie Edwards. She recalls being 13 and walking to the bank with her mom, who was going to deposit a ring. Katie said the ring is pretty, and her mom tells her it was her Aunt Eunice's ring, and when Katie gets married, it will become hers. This was a family ring that Eunice supposedly never took off. It was not found on her body Christmas Eve. So how did Perry Jr. get the ring? Lynn Marie also discovered a name on the original police report, Robert Foster. He was a witness that was supposed to testify against Tommy, but never showed up. It was eventually changed to Felton Thomas, the guy that went with Charlie Mays to pick up the TV. He was accused of robbery of a five and dime across the street from the Ziegler Furniture Store that same night around 8 p.m. Detective Fry claims it was just a typo. That's weird because that was a typo that he wrote four times in one report and didn't bother to fix until weeks later. It's interesting that Felton Thomas, Ed Williams, and Charlie Mays all knew each other. Tommy Ziegler has exhausted all his appeals and further DNA testing has been denied. One of Tommy's attorneys said the courts are now setting the bar unreasonably high. They will only allow DNA testing because it will prove without a doubt someone is innocent. But on the other side, you have people that don't know and want definite answers, and that's why they want to test. DNA experts say not knowing whose blood is who is a huge no-no. You have to know whose blood is who before you come up with a theory. Advanced testing of Tommy's blood, clothes, fingernail scrapings, and guns is critical to proving Tommy's innocence. Since he's been in prison, Tommy has witnessed at least 14 executions. His father passed away. He's had several stays of execution, including coming just 20 minutes before, thanks to attorney Vernon Davids, who flew in to meet with the U.S. Supreme Court. In June of 2013, Rick Scott signed a new law called the Timely Justice Act, which will accelerate the process of state's death penalty, which basically means he wants to clear out the prison of inmates that have been in there for years, which I get, but you must prove that someone is guilty without a doubt. If there is doubt, there needs to be further investigation. All of Tommy's attorneys are still on his side. They even said they will pay for his DNA testing if it gets approved. His family and friends still support him. Daughters and nieces are now looking into his case. Even though Tommy has been in prison more years than he was free, he has been described as gentle and cheerful. Tommy exercises, reads, writes letters, and watches the news and golf on a 13-inch TV. He played chess with an inmate next to him. They couldn't see each other, so they would call out their moves. After Ted Bundy was executed, Tommy stopped playing chess. Why why did he stop playing chess after Ted Bundy was... He was playing chess with Ted Bundy? That is correct. Oh my goodness. Right? That's insane. Yeah. Wow. World's colliding. He thinks of Eunice every day, and through it all, he still has his faith. Tommy said, I quit being angry. I accept it. Today, the Ziegler Furniture Store is a children's thrift store, and there's still a bullet hole in the wall. So you drove by this place? Mm-hmm. Wow. I could take you today if you want to see it. How interesting. I mean, it's obviously not the furniture store anymore, but... Right. So do you think do you think he's guilty? I don't. Okay. I really don't. Wow, that's really interesting. I know, right? And there's so much more to it. I mean, there's so much information out there. I, it's a little overwhelming. Oh, for sure. Wow, what a crazy case. Yeah. Right here in my backyard. Yeah, <laughs> literally. It's like 15 minutes away. Okay, so Paula, I was um, scrolling through Facebook um, one day last week, and I came upon this, like, 
I don't know if it was a meme or what, but it just went on and I went down this rabbit hole and I just had to share it with you. Have you heard of a phenomenon called Uncanny Valley? No, that's not remotely familiar. Okay. So what this is, this is a phenomenon known only in humans where humans as a whole find the likeness of another human unsettling. Okay, but likeness, not... <laughs> let, me, let me just... Okay, so... Like, you know the movie The Polar Express? Yes. Okay, you know how those characters look very human-like? Yes. And a lot of people find that very creepy because it looks so similar to an actual human, but yet it is not a human. Okay. So think of, like, a wax figure um, or a very realistic looking lifelike doll or um, there's even like horror characters that look like people but yet their eyes are a little too sunken in or they're a little too skinny or their mouths are a little too large to be actually human human but yet they look very very similar um, and as a whole humans are very much creeped out by this and it's called uncanny valley and there's this whole group of people that think maybe back before any of us were around there may have been some creature alive in this world that existed what that looked very human-like but wasn't quite human and that's why we are the only animals that experience this phenomenon. You know, they, they could put a statue of an elephant up and an elephant's not going to get freaked out about it. True. Um, so then I, I just kept reading and reading and reading. And there's this whole theory that maybe there was this whole other group of, I don't know if I would call them people, but creatures that existed and maybe we killed them all or maybe they went extinct, or maybe they still exist. But we're frightened by them because in whatever way, they were our enemy. Yeah. And we had reason to be afraid of them. And then, you know, over all these years of, you know, evolving and becoming what we are, we have kept that fear. Weird. I know. And I just thought, oh, that's so strange because it's true. There are like certain movies like for me the movie like the ring or the grudge where mm -hmm. the the you know bad guy is really just a human looking character but they move a little too jerky or you know something about them just isn't quite right or like i've seen you know the scary movies where you know the bad guy it's a close-up of a face a human face but then all of a sudden the mouth opens just like a little too big yeah. like it it's the creepiest thing way creepier than you know a monster right. or something so it just kind of hit home with me and I just thought that was super interesting I wonder if this creature if it did exist if they saw one of a normal human if they would be freaked out by what we look like I don't know but honestly we're the ones that still exist yeah. so they probably should be and where would they live like in caves I don't know I don't know at all that's the big question that is so weird. Isn't that weird? Yes. Oh, girl, you could spend hours looking all 
looking, you know, down this rabbit hole I'm of this. definitely going to Google this. Yes, but be careful if you Google image Uncanny Valley, you'll get some really creepy, creepy images of these things that at first glance look like us, but not, not quite. <laughs> yeah, pretty creepy. Prepare for nightmares. Absolutely. <laughs> definitely the things <laughs> my nightmares are made of. Don't look right before bedtime. <laughs> I did that once. I, t I think I shared with you um, that I have this fear of things that should not be underwater but are underwater, mm -hmm. like statues, boats, things like that. And so I Google imaged, Google image searched that. Th there's the name of the phobia, and I can't think of the name. But if you Google image search it, oh my gosh, I had to. I literally had to stop looking. And I was on my phone. I wasn't even on a computer. It right. was like... So it was a small picture of what you're afraid small of. Small pictures, but girl, it was terrifying. And oh, you'll have to do it <laughs> because you'll probably even... It was the scariest looking stuff underwater I've ever... Like, I think people who don't even have that fear would have probably been freaked out right. because it was like pictures of like these scary, scary things underwater yikes yeah I'm, I'm interested enough that i will look but i'm chicken enough that i know it's gonna scare me <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna scare you it's very scary i'll do it anyway yes <laughs> the things we do for fun yeah well thanks everybody for listening to us we hope you had a great holiday season we're looking forward to uh what 2021 may hold yes Hopefully some good and, stuff. Yes, a fresh start. We all need it. Absolutely. We appreciate your, uh, your following us. And if you have any suggestions, anything you'd like for us to hear, or any cases you'd like for us to share, please just send us an email at dollsanddoom at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram at dollsanddoomthepodcast. And like and subscribe. Leave us reviews. Tell us what you want us to uh, share with you. And we look forward to seeing you next year. Yes. Hope your Christmas and New Year's are safe and happy and fun. Yes, absolutely. Bye. Bye.